chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servants said to him, Let them seek a young virgin from my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and they brought her to, to the king. And the girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And we'll pray. God, I again just thank you um, for your love for us. We thank you, Jesus, for your life and, and all that you've done for us. And we are here, Lord, to remember you. And we want you, God, to work in us that our hearts would be undistracted and, and devoted to you in that simple and pure devotion that you desire. And that we would be free, God, in our hearts for you to speak to us and that we would um, just be strengthened, girded, Lord, in our faith uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Sometimes people ask me, because I've been at His Hill for so long, directing a Bible school for so long, and they say, um, do the students ever do anything that still surprises you? You know, are there new pranks or anything, things that you have never seen yet? And sometimes I think, I've seen it all, seen it all. But there's always something more that happens. And I recently heard that some of the guys in one of the dorms um, got new roommates. I didn't know about the new roommates, but they um, apparently some girls um, got all their clothing and and um, formed dolls, wrapping it in cellophane, and put these new persons in their room. When they came back, they, they had new, new um, roommates. <laughs> Never heard of that one before. But I think that's so mild, that's so calm. I mean, just, yeah, no problem. When I was a student, <laughs> there were no rules. Now we have lots of rules, partly because of that year. <laughs> and some of us decided it would be fun to catch as many armadillos as we could and buy a bunch of white mice and dip the mice in fluorescent paint and paint the armadillos with the same glow-in-the-dark paint and then turn them all loose in the girls' dorms. It never happened. Um, somehow news got out and we um, had to turn loose our armadillos and our mice. I'm not giving ideas to our guys. Do not, no, don't do that. But um, you think the longer you, leave, you live, um, the less there is to surprise you. And you ought to be better prepared for just life. Well, David, when we start here with David's life, and, and I um, just thought it would be, it's been 10 years or more since um, as a church we looked at, at second, first and second kings. Don't know that we'll look at all of, all of um, 
um, that, but at least here with First Kings, and and um, and I just am aware that in preaching a, a book rather than teaching it in Bible school, I actually can slow down in preaching and and get into the text a little bit more. Um, there's not as much with time constraints, and I and it, I thought it just might be profitable for us because there's so many things here that apply not only to our lives as individual believers, but even to society. Um, because we see a, in the course between the first chapter of 1 Kings and the end of 1 Kings, just a tremendous um, downfall of society. And there are a lot of lessons there for us today. But this passage starts out and it says, David was old. Now I take a little offense at that um, because he was 70. He was 30 when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. And so even though I went to public school, I can do that math. That makes him 70 years old. Um, doesn't seem that old anymore. <laughs> From my 89-year-old father. Yeah. David um, is about to die. He, he has lived a very full and hard 70 years. We know that the first years of his life he spent as a shepherd out in the wilderness sleeping under the stars. That would have aged him. When he killed Goliath, he, I think he was not 12, 13. I think it's more likely he was 16 or 17. And he was inducted into the army of Saul only to fall out of favor with Saul promptly. And he spent the entire decade of his life from 20 to 30 running from King Saul, living in caves, fending for his life, fighting battles. That would have aged him. And then when he finally became king at 30 years old, he spent at least the first 20 years in constant warfare. And he was out on the battlefield with his soldiers during that time. So at 50... David is showing his age. He, is, he has lived a hard life. At 70, he can't stay warm at night. So that tells us his heart is failing. The circulation is not what it once was. And so he's having difficulty um, getting the body heat that we normally would have. He's probably losing weight as well. It wasn't uncommon for people to have lost teeth um, before they reached this age. The, when we read the Song of Solomon, the king is, one of the things he commends his wife for is that she has all of her teeth. And she was probably only 18, 19 years old. So at this time, there was not good dental hygiene. And, um, and David was probably a toothless, white-haired, skinny 70-year-old man with one foot on the grave. Things were not good for David. And so his servants were really concerned. And so they said in verse 2, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom that my lord the king may keep warm. These are really thoughtful servants. Of all the ways they could figure out how to help David, they tried piling blankets on him. That didn't help. Still came to eat his oatmeal in the morning, 
blue. And so they said, blue is not a good color. Um, you're, you're, you're obviously needing some help. So we've got a solution. We want to hold a Miss Israel contest and bring to you the most beautiful young virgin we can find and let her keep you, keep you warm at night. Now, we know David said yes to this because in verse 3 it says, So they searched for a beautiful girl. Well, maybe this was still being done behind David's back. No, because it said in verse 2, the end of the verse, Let her lie in your bosom that my Lord the King may keep warm. This wasn't behind David's back. They went straight to David with their proposal. This is our plan. And in verse 3, we know David said yes because they're looking for the girl. And they found her. Her name was Abishag. Verse 4, she was very beautiful. She became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. No sexual relations. And we think David woke up, this man after God's own heart, came to his right senses and decided, I can't do this thing. And so he stopped it before it went any further. I don't think so. Was this a legitimate solution to David's problem? Culturally, yes. Nobody in the culture at the time would have had any difficulty with what was taking place. They would say the king can do this. Culturally, not a problem. Biblically, different story. Big problem. But was this actually about meeting a physical need that David had? Or was something else going on? I had us read this morning verse 5 because it says, As soon as it became known that David did not sleep with this woman, verse 5, At that moment, at that time, now, Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself to be king. I think there's a connection. I believe that Adonijah says, this is my chance to be king. So something has transpired here between verse 4 and verse 5 to bring Adonijah to that conclusion. Here's something to remember. This is why as I look at this passage and this, this situation in David's life, and I think this was not about a, a, a legitimate physical need being met. I don't think so at all. And the reason is because if one skinny 18, 19 year old virgin can keep David warm at night, then why not one of his eight wives or one of his many concubines? Because the Bible says he had eight wives and many concubines. And any one of those women could have served the purpose of keeping David warm at night. There's something else going on here. We need to keep in mind that there is a conspiracy happening right under David's nose. Adonijah has been for some time planning and scheming how he can take the throne from his father David and from his brother Solomon. And David is not aware of that conspiracy. In verse 18, when Bathsheba tells him what's going on, she says, And now behold, Adonijah is king. 
And now, my Lord, the king, you do not know it. This warrior who has seen it all is blind to a conspiracy that's happening in his own home. David's not in a good place spiritually at this time. I'm not saying he's a write-off. I'm not saying he doesn't have a heart for God anymore. Far from it. But David is um, falling victim to what may be perhaps the strongest temptation that men face, and particularly old men. There aren't an, an indefinite number of temptations. There are a lot of them. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way in which a person can be tempted, and yet he was without sin. We are tempted every moment of our lives if we are yielded to the Lord. Oswald Chambers says that the yielded life is the most tempted life. And he says that because there was never anybody who was more yielded to God than Jesus. And there was never anybody more tempted than Jesus. Temptation is not sin. The Son of God was tempted as He took on humanity. But there are not an indefinite number of temptations. And in fact, most of them can be categorized in three or four categories. And one of them is what David is facing here. The temptation to think that you have to prove yourself. In what way? You see, what they're trying to do is ascertain whether David still has the physical strength to be king. Today, we might want a president to take a cognitive test. (laughs) At this time, it wasn't a cognitive test, but it was a strength test. And in particular, the strength to be able to still father a child. That's what this is about. See, this, we don't understand this because we've become a very soft society. We would never think of ourselves as a warrior society. Most would not any longer. Look at the way the Navy is recruiting, and I don't think you could say we are a warrior society any longer. But Israel was a warrior society, and it took a warrior to be king over a nation of warriors. You had to have a warrior. David had been that man. And because he had been that man, Solomon is going to be able to be a king and not go to war. So the people understood, we have got to have a man who is able to fight. Is David still that man? Does David still have what it takes to be king? Now the servants, there are a few options here. They're either part of the conspiracy, which is a valid thing to consider. This conspiracy is happening right under David's nose. Maybe they're part of that conspiracy. Or they're genuinely trying to help David with his health. 
which is unlikely. Or they're trying to help David prove that he still has the ability to rule, knowing that the people are beginning to question his ability, his fitness. One other option. It's very likely that everybody in the country knew that David should have stepped down before this. And only David thinks he can still do it. And the servants might be trying to help David face the obvious. You can't do this anymore. It's like sometimes adult children feel like that their dad can no longer drive. And so they might want to get other people involved to help him see you should not be driving anymore. And so they have a test done. I know of a this happened, I think it was my father-in-law that this happened. And he, I remember I was just driving down the road with him at different times in these narrow roads in Pennsylvania. And, and he'd just be drifting over to the other side. And I'd reach over and pull the steering wheel back real gently. And um, I thought, it's time for this man to stop driving. And the siblings all thought, time for this man to stop driving. But he didn't think so. And so, but the, he agreed to take a driver's test. And he passed. Well, it could be the servants are trying to say, David needs an objective way to be able to prove he doesn't have the strength to be king. Now, the reason it needed to be a virgin, I believe, is because, um, number one, if David is 70, his wives were probably all past childbearing years. And if this is about fathering a child, those years are gone for the wives. If they want to know, is he even able to continue to perform sexually, then it needs to be a virgin because his wives would be inclined to not tell the truth on that matter. It would be in their best interest to not tell the truth. Because they can maintain their position, their station in life, as long as David is still king. And so they wanted a virgin, so that they could objectively verify whether or not David is still sexually active. And when it says that David did not cohabit with her, Adonijah takes the position that it wasn't because David chose not to, It was because he couldn't. See, he had already answered the question, would you be willing to do this? He had already answered that question, yes. And that's why they went and found the girl. So this is no longer a question of would you. This is now only a question of can you. And when word got out, David didn't. His oldest son said he didn't because he couldn't. I know my dad. And my dad could, he would have. Which is a sad commentary on David. This is all about David proving that he has the strength to rule. Poor Bishak. This would not have been her dream. Can you imagine Miss Israel? I'm being facetious. There was no Miss Israel contest. But somehow they went through the nation from top to bottom 
sizing up all the women, and they found this young woman, beautiful young girl. And they said, she is clearly the most beautiful woman in all the nation of Israel. So if there had been a Miss Israel contest, and they start to put the crown on the first place winner, Abishag, and then they say, the grand prize, the grand prize, you get to sleep with the white-haired, toothless, skinny, cold king. Yay! And I would think runner-up is going, thank you, Jesus. Because <laughs> this, this, this ruins this girl's life. She didn't grow up saying, this is what I would like. This was never in her dreams. She was merely the means to an end. She was being used. It's never about love. And even if it had been about love, it was still wrong. They ruined her life. And nobody cares. Again, David's not doing well. Did you know that when you look over the life of David, the 70 years that he lived, and he was an extraordinary man, there was one area of his life that he never said, it's yours, God. Every area of his life, he trusted God for. When they came to make him king, he didn't just say, yeah, about time. He sought God. Is this what you want for me, God? When Saul spent 10 years trying to murder him, he never took things into his own hands. Could have. More than one occasion, he could have easily killed Saul. But he didn't. Trusted God. When he went into battle, Lord, should I go into battle? Should I not? Lord, should I stay in this city? Will they deliver me over to my enemies? Should I go? You find David consulting God on everything. Isn't that, wouldn't that be the definition of a man after God's own heart? He's not living his own life. God, it's your life. What is your will for me? Except in one area. Women. And there is not a single time in David's life when it came to taking a wife that he ever talked to God first. Perhaps the worst example is with his first wife, Michael, the daughter of the king. Now she loved David. The text says so. She loved David. Never says David loved her. Never. David's one reason for marrying that girl was to keep himself safe from Saul. He thought, if I marry the king's daughter, the king won't kill me. That's why he married her. And when his life was threatened by the king, he was pretty quick to leave her behind when he ran for his life. He never yielded this one area to God. Never. In everything else he sought God. In this area, David is fully like the world. 
fully like the world. No distinctiveness between David and his relationship with women and the world. And the world had no problem with how David was living his life in this area of his life. I hope I don't have to draw, to connect all the dots here for you, for our society, and how, what we are doing today. As concerned as we are for our, for our society and how it is falling down around our ears. I'm one of those dinosaurs that believes that this has not happened overnight. That the first domino fell a while back and we're just seeing a more rapid falling of the dominoes now. I tend to think the first domino that fell was very likely when we said, what's the problem with divorce and remarriage? Because that destroys the very bedrock of the family, which is the bedrock of society. I heard a man just saying today that when he was, was um, growing up, that there was just a very small percentage of black children that were raised without a dad. In fact, it's Larry Elders, who is 71 years old. He's going to run for president, is running for president. He said it was something like less than 20% of black youth were raised without a father in the home. And now it is over 70% in one lifetime. How does that not bring down society around our ears? It is the unyielded areas of our lives that are our downfall. It is the unyielded areas where Satan has an open door because God has been closed out. When I say no to God, the door is open for the enemy. And David was enough of a warrior to know this. This is about a war about a battle that is a constant, lifelong battle. Show me an area of any person's life where he has said no to God, where he has not yielded that area to God, and I will show you where the attack is coming. Unyieldedness is disaster waiting to happen. The turmoil in David's family, even the eventual downfall of the nation, can be traced back to an unyieldedness in this area. Any unyieldedness in our lives? This is a constant evaluation that needs to take place. At one time, we may sit down with God and say, God, it's all yours. Slowly as the years go by, we start taking things back again. So this is not a once and done thing. I think we all know that. There are periodically times in our life, and I know at times I've challenged our students on this, where we need to sit down alone with God, no eye on the clock, with a piece of paper, and say, God, your word says, present all the instruments of your body to him as instruments of, of, of righteousness. And so, God, let's do it. And you write down on a piece of paper everything you can think of that makes you, you. And ask God to bring to remembrance anything that you're forgetting. And transact with God and say, it's yours, God. It's yours. That's what it means to present ourselves to him 
as a living sacrifice. We need to look at our use of money, our use of time, our emphasis on possessions. We need to look at the relationships. Have they all been released to God or am I clutching and clinging on to children, to spouse, maybe to the desire to be married, to personal ambitions and goals? It is a crucified life that we've been called to. And the crucified life is, by definition, a yielded life. Every minute, every detail, all yielded to Jesus. The life Christ wants to live in me is a life of dying to self and presenting to Him everything in loving dependence and obedience. This temptation to prove oneself, which David is yielding himself to by not yielding to God his relationship with women, he's being tempted specifically to prove that he still has what it takes to be king. Do you see the irony of that? He's never had what it takes to be king. That's the lie of the temptation. Prove yourself. What is the assumption with that? You've got something to prove. You can prove yourself. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So if a person can do nothing, he has nothing to prove. <laughs> what a way to live. If we could just get that through our heads. And so why does God accept me? Because I've proved myself acceptable? He accepts me because he loves me. And I have nothing to prove before God because I can do nothing apart from God. Think about it. What relationships are the best relationships you have? Which friendships are your dearest friendships? I guarantee it's those relationships and friendships where you have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. When David killed Goliath, he was the one who said, God can do this. It's the Lord that delivered the lion to me. The Lord delivered the, 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 the bear to me. And God will deliver this Philistine. It's God's job. And that's why he, he so stood out. Because here's a teenage boy that says, I've got nothing to prove. But I know my God. And I know what he can do through one who's available and yielded to him. One writer one time said, God did not save you in order to show the world what a great person he could make out of you. He saved you in order to show the world what a great God he is. He, we are not here to prove ourselves. Jesus did not come. Jesus in all that he is, did not come to this earth to prove himself. In John 17, shortly before his crucifixion, he said, Father, I have come to do thy will and to glorify thee, and I have accomplished all that you have sent me to do. In John 14, he says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Jesus had one agenda, glorify the Father. 
let people see the Father. It was never about proving himself. You remember when the devil said, go up onto the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself down from here? Historians believe he was 120 feet up. That's a 12-story building. Way up on the top of the temple, pinnacle of the temple, right next to the Kidron Valley, 120 feet up. Throw yourself off. If you're the son of God, the angels will come and bear you up. And Jesus didn't. He understood he is not here on this planet to prove himself to anybody. He's got nothing to prove. He did not need to let the world see by angels coming and grabbing him, proving that he's the son of God. And they nailed him to the cross, not believing that he was the son of, the son of God. Nothing to prove. Willing to let everyone believe what wasn't true about him. That is death to self. But that is such freedom. It is good news. Good news to know that we are not on a performance basis with God. All ability, even the ability to obey, Scripture says, comes from God. We celebrate the new covenant today with the Lord's Supper. Do you remember that in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel prophesies concerning the new covenant, and he gives four blessings of the covenant, and the fourth one is, and you will be given the Spirit of God who will cause you to obey. I can't take credit even for obedience. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, if I have to look over my life, I will only give thanks and praise to what God has done. And then he says, namely, the obedience of the Gentiles. Because that's the miracle of miracles. To take one that has been an enemy of God and have him so transformed that he becomes obedient to God. And it takes God to take a rebel and make him obedient. We are not on a performance basis with God. The one thing he's looking for is just to say, Jesus, here I am. But we live in a world where performance is demanded. Yep, we all get it. Try showing up to work, Charlie, and not doing what you're supposed to do. There are performance standards. I get it. I get it. My point is, we show up to work knowing there are things that we have to do to keep that job, but we trust Jesus for the ability to do those things. And we're not just gutting it out and doing our best in our own strength. The temptation to prove oneself maybe is the most powerful temptation of old age. No one wants to become irrelevant unnecessary or inconsequential. A friend of mine told me years ago that the older she got, the more she felt like she was becoming invisible, the invisible woman. She could walk through stores, obviously needing assistance, and nobody comes and helps. 
I can remember going to Home Depot with my 16-year-old daughter, getting so much help. <laughs> so much so that she's saying, Daddy, does it seem like we're getting lots of attention? She knows, knew exactly what was going on. Any other time I walk through Home Depot, nobody talks to me. <laughs> Cute 16-year-old daughter, young guys coming from everywhere wanting to help me. But that changes, and we become irrelevant, obsolete, invisible, and it's really hard. No one wants to become dependent. And the older you get, the more you realize how dependent you are. I can't even program the remote on the TV. I bought Patsy a greenhouse for her birthday, knowing I have three sons and a son-in-law that can put it together. <laughs> One of the hardest things is to know when it's time to step aside. And this is not a sermon that I'm retiring or anything like that, so don't worry. But it is something that, you know, as I've watched men in particular, because we derive so much of our significance from what we do, and I can think of two men in particular in the ministry close to me who have hung on too long, and the fruit has started to rot. I think they honestly don't see it. And so many people around them are saying, why don't they step down? Why don't they step down? And they don't. So I have asked now on more than one occasion, both the elder board here at the church and at his hill, to be actively involved with me in this decision. Because I see men that are better than myself who don't know when it's time to step down, who am I to kid myself to think that I will be any more discerning than they are? Sometimes God reveals his will by withholding his grace to be able to perform. Moses, you remember, was 120 when he died. And the Bible says he was as strong as 120 as he was at, I think it was 40. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Goodness, I was trying to use a pickaxe to bring, take out some yucca plants, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> 120, and he is just as strong as he's ever been. He didn't die of old age. He got, died because God withdrew the grace of life. David's declining strength should have been a message to him that God is saying, David, it's over. He didn't hear it. Now, there are reasons why we don't experience God's enabling grace, and one of them is that God is trying to get us to step aside 
or maybe to change directions, to go to a new ministry, a new opportunity that he has for us. We just no longer experience God's grace for what we used to know God's grace for. It's just not there anymore. And so God can do that. He can just say, I don't know how else to get through to you, but I'm going to do this gently. I'm withdrawing the ability that you once had to do the thing that you've done so easily for so long. You just aren't going to be able to do it anymore. I'm trying to tell you it's time to step aside. Sometimes we don't experience God's grace for what we're doing because we're doing more than what, the God, than, more than what God has asked us to do. Ladies, this is probably a temptation for you. It's very common, as I've seen with my dear wife, that many times in our marriage, the reason there's been frustration and it is because she's not knowing the grace of God and it's in areas typically because she's added something to her life that was good, but it wasn't what God wanted. Sometimes we're not experiencing God's grace because we're operating outside of the lanes that God has created for us. Because we see somebody else that's functioning in a certain area, we should be able to function. No, stay in the lane that God has made for you. Stay in that lane. I loved baseball as a kid. But I knew I will never be a professional baseball player. If I had spent my life trying to be a baseball player, I would have spent a life of frustration because God did not give me the grace and ability to be a major league baseball player, obviously. God has boundaries and lanes for us. They may be narrower than someone else's. That's okay. God has made us each unique. And we are to stay within those unique lanes that God has created for us. That's where you will know God's grace. I should ask, why am I not experiencing the enabling grace of God? Is it because I've been presuming on the supply of His grace for something that He hasn't given me to do? Is it because I'm, not, I'm doing more than He would have me to do? Is it because I'm relying on my own ability rather than upon Him? Or is He trying to tell me it's time to step aside that He has something else for me? The answer, we know this, when we are faced with our own inability, is not to try harder to do more or to prove yourself. It is to humble yourself, seek God, and receive what he has to say. David took a woman 50 years his junior. He was blind to the conspiracy under his nose. He was blind to the need to step aside and he was blind to the foolishness of his own actions. Really? I know a lot of men will marry, especially if their wife passes away, someone quite a bit younger. But 50 years younger? Who does that? David is still a man after his own, a man after God's own heart. But old men can do stupid things.
and the temptation to prove yourself will always be stupid. Jesus never came to prove himself. Nothing to prove. What a free way to live. I've told the story many times. I'll wrap up with it. Ian Thomas, the founder and general director of Torchbearers, um, if you look up in the dictionary, what does it mean to be a type A personality? You'll see Major Thomas's picture there. <laughs> he broke the mold on type A driven, performance kind of guys, demanding kind of guy. We hated it. All the torchbearers hated it when Major Thomas would show up. The students hated it when Major Thomas would show up. Because everybody would run around there like, like chickens with their head cut off trying to get everything perfect because Major's coming. He came to his hill one time and he poked himself in an eye from a tree branch that was too low. Well, guess what's happening the next time before he comes? Everybody's out there lopping off every branch that they can get. And I'm just going, why don't you just tell him to duck? You know, I mean, so that kind of gives you a bit of backdrop to the kind of man that he was. And, and my first um, staff conference, international staff conference in England, right after I'd become director, I was introduced to all of Torchbearers Worldwide, and they were not impressed. You could see it in the room. They thought, what did Major Thomas do putting this kid in charge of that ministry? And, um, and I was discouraged. I, I mean, you could read the, just the, re, the res, re, reservation, the hesitancy that was there in the room about me being director. Well, I already knew I didn't have what it took, and now I'm going to get confirmed by everybody in the room. And so I just walked out just low. And Major Thomas, this high-performance guy, comes over, didn't even see him coming, and he slid up next to him, and he put his arm across my shoulder. And he says, Charlie, I never want to hear what you are doing at his hill. I just want to hear what Jesus is doing. Greatest gift he could have given me. Because I knew he was saying to me, you do not have to perform for me. And this is a guy who is the, the, the most highly decorated World War II veteran in England in their history. He knew what it was to perform. And he says, you have nothing to prove to me. I just want to hear what Jesus is doing. What a free way to live our lives. Jesus, thank you. I have nothing to prove. I'll close us in prayer. It is purely by your grace and mercy, God, that you receive us. It is not because you found something good in us. It is not because we achieved or performed. Thank you, God, that you are truly our all in all. And I thank you that you love us, you have showered us with your grace, and you are available every moment of every day to enable us that you might be the only explanation for our lives. And I pray as we live this life, God, as we are so tempted to slide back into the performance because that's the world we live in, that we'd be alert by your spirit to what's happening and that we would turn back to you, oh God, in the truth that we can do nothing 
apart from Christ. And that you live in us to be all that we need to be. Thank you, God, for your sufficiency in the face of our inadequacy. In Christ's name, amen.